0: We can't be contained because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24.
1: From the Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. This week, as 2018 winds down, we're going to be talking about something that can feel like a permanent part of American life, year after year after year. We're going to be talking about guns. And this episode includes some intense descriptions of abuse and violence. So if you've got kids listening or other people who might have a hard time with that material, just a heads up. America is a country where mass shootings happen often enough that you can see patterns. You've got a lot of data points to look at. And there's one clear thing that the men, and they are almost all men, behind mass killings tend to share, aside from being men. It's the common thread between the Pulse nightclub shooter and the Parkland shooter and the Capital Gazette shooter. It's the common thread between the man who killed three people at a Planned Parenthood in Colorado in 2015 and the man who killed three people at Mercy Hospital in Chicago last month. What these men have in common is domestic violence and abuse of women. In fact, a leading gun safety group, Everytown, has called domestic violence a driving factor in mass shootings. And that's the part of the American gun story that we are looking at today. There's a continuum between the biggest, most public acts of violence, the ones that make headlines, and the private ones, which often don't. At this point, you can probably picture the standard front page photos of a shooting crowds embracing and weeping outside an office or school, aerial shots of police arriving, and eventually, a candlelight vigil. A few weeks back, on Twitter, some doctors started posting a different kind of photo. They wanted to show the immediate aftermath of gun violence that they saw at work every day. They posted photos of bloody gurneys, bloody scrubs, the things left behind all the time, not just when a shooting makes the news. In the midst of all that, a woman named Kate Ranta shared a photo of her own. She wasn't a doctor, the photo wasn't from her job. It was taken in her house, right after she was shot. Underneath a dining table set with glasses and a pillar candle, you see a path of blood the size of a body smeared across the wood floor. There are big, dark puddles in a few places, and splatters going up a wall. It's not an easy picture to look at. But it was arresting. We wanted to hear the story behind it. Kate lived in Parkland, Florida, when the photo was taken and had family right by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. But the photo was taken years before Parkland was in the news. And this story starts a few years before that, when she met a man named Tom
2: Buffet. I called him Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> to all my
1: friends.
0: <laughs> when I first
2: started dating him, I thought he
1: was perfect. It was the summer of 2007 when Kate decided to try online dating for the first time. She was 34, a single mom to her three-year-old son, Henry, and she'd been married twice previously. She wasn't sure how hopeful she should be when she made a post on Yahoo Personals. But then she got her first response, and she was stunned. He,
2: first of all, was he was extremely handsome and had said that he didn't have kids. And so I was like, there's no way that this guy is going to want to deal with, you know, a single mom, like yeah. you know, children and things like that. So... I thought no way would he respond, but he did. Um, What had drawn you to him? I found him attractive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But also he was, at the time, a captain in the Air Force. This is somebody who's sacrificed for our country, and he's an officer, so he's educated and together, and they have to pass all kinds of security clearances and psych evaluations, and so it kind of like automatically vetted him. Yeah, for almost me, like someone has right? like somebody else <laughs> done did the all research. The work. Yeah. Obviously, he's he's successful, and <laughs> he's you know in contracting, and yeah. he's you know got a really good job, and he's completely together. Yeah. So you know, my impression. Was that it was that it was, you know, it was impressive. He was a gentleman. He would help me with things with my car, like, oh, your car probably needs an oil change. I'll go, I'll go get it done. You know, he anticipated things, that kind of stuff. You know, offered to help with Henry, you know, pick him up from preschool. Well, how did your relationship develop from there, from the initial quickly, very quickly. And I mean, I moved in three months after we met. That's probably one of the biggest red flags that I wound up missing. When I first met him, he had this case of hunting rifles kind of on display. And I I was like, okay. He really let it be known that he had multiple shotguns In the home, one was under the bed. Multiple handguns just in a drawer, not locked up or anything. So when I was moving in with Henry, I mean, Henry was three. Oh, my God. And he's on the autism spectrum. He has high-functioning autism. And so I was worried. Like, I didn't know if he would get into that stuff and not know... Even if warning him about the you know dangers if he would just do right, So I did insist, and this was before I really knew anything at all about guns, gun safety, anything. Just instinctually, I was like, I need you to get like at least like trigger locks and some safes for these handguns because I don't need Henry, especially with the shotgun under the bed, (laughs) discovering this. Jesus, and he. He was resistant at first because it was like, well, if somebody breaks in, I have to be able to grab the shotgun and blow them away. And I I was like, "Uh, you know, I can't do this. Like, you need to secure these guns. And he did relent and he got trigger locks and he got safes for the handguns. Mm -hmm. I was uncomfortable and he could tell I was uncomfortable. Yeah, what did you say? I was like, why? Why do you have so many guns? And he talked about Growing up in New Jersey with his father, who also was military, who was a big hunter. Mm -hmm. So he hunted in New Jersey and then subsequently in Connecticut. They lived in rural Connecticut. So I know, you know, hunting and being around guns was something he had done his whole life. He was also in the military, so he explained his training and it's something he enjoys. And he likes having them also for protection. Yeah, I'd never dated anybody with guns. I thought to myself, well, I mean, this is his culture. This is how he grew up. He's military. They all have guns. Was it something you talked to your son about at all? Um, I did. I did. Yeah. And actually, Tom did, too, um, ironically. He he did talk with, with Henry multiple times about guns, and you only point them at somebody if you're going to shoot somebody. You don't play with them. Not long after they moved in together, Kate got a call
1: Tom had been in a motorcycle accident. He was in the hospital. She rushed to be with him.
2: While in the hospital, he said, I know you're a good girl. And you've been by my side with this. So there's something for you in the closet.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Go get the box and bring it back. I knew what it was, but I didn't like open it. I went into the closet where he told me to get it brought it back to the hospital, and he proposed to me in the hospital. Like, the nurses came in and were all crying, and everybody just thought it was so romantic, and, oh, this beautiful couple, and now they're engaged, and he lived through this accident, and it was just this, like, whirlwind movie type of situation.
1: Kate was thrilled, but she'd also started noticing little things— Like, Tom would text her nonstop if she was spending time with other people, even her parents. Or she'd find out he told her lies about his past. But if she asked him about it, there was always a reasonable explanation. One of the little things that was harder to get past was Facebook. This was 2007. Everyone Kate knew was getting on Facebook. But here's what Tom said when she said she wanted to join.
2: My therapist has told me that... Getting on to social media opens the door for infidelity. And I think that that would be really detrimental to our new relationship. So I don't think it's a good idea for you to get on Facebook. I really wanted to. I'm a a social person. I, I wanted and I wanted to reconnect with people, you know, sure. and it just became this like sore subject. Finally, I was able to figure out a way around his concern. So I said, okay, I'll open up a Facebook account, but I'll have only females. And he was like, okay. But if any man outside of those people tries to friend request you, I want to know about it. And I was like, okay, sure, fine, whatever. If you've heard many
1: stories about domestic abuse, your ears are probably pricking up right now. The possessiveness, the desire for control. These things are classic. Tom and Kate didn't have a long engagement. She found out she was pregnant, and a couple of months later, they decided to go to Las Vegas. After she had the baby, a son they named William, Tom moved the whole family, including Kate's older son, Henry, onto a military base in Virginia.
2: He also moved his guns. Once we moved to Fort Belvoir, all of those locks came off. Wow. We He, he had mounted the shotguns in the master bedroom closet completely oh unlocked.
1: So did you see them every day? Like if you I went would to see go get your ev- clothes? <laughs> yes.
2: I would, there, I, there would be two shotguns on the wall. Yeah. And I, at that point was very, I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the guns. Yeah. He would take his handguns, especially out and lay them on the bed and take them apart and clean them in front of me. And he would take ones that had a laser on them and, and play with the laser on the wall What did you think when the locks came off the guns when you moved? I was so frustrated, but at that point I I didn't have quite the leverage, I guess, that I had early on when we were moving in and we weren't married yet and he was still reeling me in. By the time we were in Belvoir, he had full control. Kate remembers
1: one time when they were living on the base and her parents came over for dinner. She's close with her family and she was excited
2: to see them. The big joke in my family was that I was never a cook. Like I would burn microwave popcorn and <laughs> grilled cheese when I was babysitting and stuff. So it, be, it became the big joke in sure. my family that, you know, Katie can't cook. <laughs> so we had these meals that everything was included in the kit. So I could do this. You could cook. I could cook. I yeah. could cook this meal. And I wanted to <laughs> do it and show my parents. And I think that's what set him off there was this sort of inside joke with my parents and we had this you know laughing moment and it was taking attention away from him he was and excluded. he al- and he yeah. always cooks i started to boil the water mm-hmm. and he walked in and had that look that i always know you know it's the the dark cloudy pissy look on his face he was like no 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 i'm going to cook that you won't make it as good as me. And I was like, well, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cook for my parents. Yeah. This is what I'm going to do. And he just kept insisting that he was going to cook. And I kept insisting that I was going to. And then he became a petulant baby and, and left. It was so uncomfortable. Did you talk it's about that- his
1: absence with your parents? Because it seems like, how do you ignore that once someone has stormed off that way?
2: Well, we are a New England family, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't get into each other's business. We don't want to upset the apple cart. This is between them. I think I just tried to kind of brush it away, and we didn't definitely didn't sit around talking about it. Yeah. He finally came back, and he was like, I watched you from the window the whole time. Oh my God. And and I was like, well, that's weird. That's Why terrifying. I know. And and he was like, You looked like you were having a great time without me. Cooking? Oh yeah. It was really embarrassing. He was never sorry. It would be we both lost our temper. And I would know that that wasn't true. I didn't lose my temper. That wasn't what I experienced. That's not what happened. But that's what I was told. We both lost our tempers or we were both in the wrong. So what would you make of it when he said that? I would feel relieved when it was like, okay, no big deal. Let's just move on. It was easier to do that and just keep going, keep moving keep pushing forward. I've got these two small kids. I've got a full-time job. I got to keep this marriage together. Whatever. Fine. It was a thing. You know, let's, we'll, get, we'll get through it.
1: Well, it seems like if you want to believe that what's going on is normal,
2: then having him be like, oh, we both lost our tempers is like, oh, yeah, that and sounds normal. Yeah. I, w- I wasn't looking at it as a pattern of escalating behavior. I was, I didn't understand that I was being isolated. Growing up, it was, if a man hits you, that's bad. That's, that's domestic violence. That's yeah. abuse. Um, if he calls you names, if he yells at you, that's bad too. Yeah. Other than that, n- nobody, my parents didn't even know about emotional abuse until I had gone through it. We were all kind of learning this alongside each other. I just didn't know. You could tell how badly Kate wanted to think things
1: would be okay. But Tom could turn scary fast. One night that stands out
2: in Kate's memory is Christmas Eve 2008. So it was Christmas Eve, and before I put the kids to bed, I thought, well, I really wanted a Christmas Eve picture of them in front of the tree. Yeah. So Henry was five. So I got them in there and sat Henry down, cross-legged in front of the tree, and put Will in his arms. And ran around the corner to grab the camera while I was grabbing the camera. All of a sudden I hear all this like yelling and crying and I come running back in and Tom is standing over Henry, pointing his finger and just laying into him. And Will was on the carpet Uh on the ground on his back. And so I, you know, I ran over and I grabbed Will who was crying and Tom's like, he fucking dropped the baby. Like he fucking hurt him. So I checked Will and then I turned and I started to comfort Henry who was sh- screaming and crying over and over. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm sorry, Tom. Over and over again and I started to say, "Honey, like it's fine. It was an accident. Don't worry. He's fine. The baby's yeah. fine." How can you fucking side with this with this psycho kid? He tried to hurt the baby, and now you're placating him and siding with him, and you love him more than you love the baby. Oh, my God. Grabs Will from me and takes him into the guest bathroom and turns on the light and starts all dramatically examining his head. And he's like, look, there's a spot right here. And I looked, and there's, like, nothing there. I was was like, there's nothing there. And he was like, there's a spot right there. He's going to fucking kill this baby. I know it. And if he hurts the baby, I'm going to hurt him. I knew. I knew to believe him. Like, if somebody says that, you believe them. The next morning, he acted like nothing had happened. And in all the pictures, you can see my eyes are very puffy Mm -hmm. because I had been crying the whole night before. At that point, obviously, I started to know that something was, you know, a little wrong.
1: Hearing a story like this feels like watching a horror movie. You want to scream, get out of that house. And a lot of people do ask women like Kate, well, why didn't you just leave? When the story's being told, it seems very clear what's
2: happening. But when you're living inside the story, that's not how it feels. That's a big part of being in a relationship like this is that there's a big piece of denial that you're in just to survive. It's survival mode. Because you're like, everything can't be falling apart, right? I can't have this fall apart. Still... Something had changed for Kate after that Christmas Eve.
1: Watching how Tom treated Henry worried her. He'd started saying things about Henry all the time. He would accuse him of hurting his little brother and then punish him. He made a special doorstop to keep Henry from going into his little brother's room. Henry was six when Kate suggested the family move to Florida. Her parents lived there half the year, and her brother and his family were there too. She wanted to be near them. To her surprise, Tom said yes. But he also said that they should leave Kate's eldest son, Henry, behind with his father. Kate was afraid of what might happen to Henry if he kept living with Tom. She said yes.
2: Henry was six um, when he went to live with his father. I I don't remember the day we drove him to have him go live with his dad. I don't remember, like, I don't remember that moment. Um, hang on
1: How did it feel to be going to Florida without him though?
2: it felt um incomplete and surreal and just like in a fog almost that's that's you asked like how I felt I call it the abuse fog I was in I was in a complete it's like disassociating from yourself and seeing and being, like, hovering above your life and seeing all of this stuff happening and and not being able to do anything about it. That's what it felt like. I mean, at the end of the day, given everything that happened once we got to Florida, it's one of the, the best decisions that I made as far as Henry's life goes. In any other circumstance, there's no way, no way would I have given up custody of my child. There's zero way. but I mean, I was I was in like the worst situation you could ever be in. I had to keep him safe. Coming
1: up after the break, what happened when
0: Kate moved to Florida? Support for this show comes from Nine West Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24.
3: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs
1: In Florida, it got harder to pretend things were normal. It got harder to hide Tom's behavior. He started having outbursts in front of Kate's family, and they were horrified.
2: My dad and then my brother and people (laughs) close to me were like, what? What is it? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know why. I don't. I don't. I don't know.
1: Kate remembers the first Christmas after they moved as a series of explosions. Henry, Kate's older son, was visiting and Tom blew up at him for tangling a fishing line. He blew up at the family for opening presents without him when he had skulked off after blowing up at Henry. On New Year's Eve, Tom told Kate that he'd fired his gun outside while the neighbors were shooting off fireworks. The next day, he started another fight about Facebook, which had never stopped being an issue. Kate was laughing at a joke someone had posted, and when she showed it to Tom, he blew up and accused her of cheating. He stormed out of the house and told Kate he was going to a strip club. When he came home late, she was still up. But he went off alone and
2: shut himself in their bedroom. And so I went and I sat down on the couch and just, like, put my head in my hands and cried. Like, I I just, I didn't know what to do. I had never seen anything like this. I had never experienced anything like this. I didn't know what to do. So I I was like, fine, I'll try to talk to him. So I went toward the master bedroom door and I heard Everybody knows what that sound <laughs> I knew what the sound was it's you know he was chambering his gun so i was like oh shit like he's just it, the thought just came quickly like he's going to shoot me i don't want it to be just right here in the house and nobody hears it so i'm going to run outside oh my god so i ran through the house i went out the front door and stood on the stoop and called 911 And I said that domestic dispute, my husband's angry, I think he's got a gun, and I had given my address. Next thing you know, next to me, the garage door comes up, and out he walks with our two-year-old in his little sleep sack. He had grabbed him from the crib and was heading toward the car. And he got in the car and put Will on his lap. Henry's sleeping inside, so I'm like, <laughs> "What? Are, you know?" But my instinct was to jump in the car and get him because Henry was actually safely in the house, and I had called the cops to get Will to get to get your Will two-year-old. away from him. Yeah. So I jumped in the car. He put it in reverse, like peeled out down the driveway, and then peeled down the block. And I was still on with 911, screaming he's got a gun. And I was begging for him just to give me the baby, leave the baby out of it, just give him to me. And um, we got to the end of the block and he raised his fist, which he had never done before. And he was like, get out of this fucking car right now. I'm going to punch you in your fucking face. And I saw his face and I knew he was going to do it. I knew he was going to do it. He had grabbed my phone and hung up from 911 and like threw it down near his feet. I couldn't get my phone. I jumped out of the car. It was instinct. I didn't know I, I'd never experienced anything like this before. So I jumped out. He tore off around the corner, still with Will, and I saw him stop and then reverse lights. So he was backing up. There were some bushes to my left. I like ran and hid in the bushes. My bladder gave out because I was so scared. I started running through the streets in in Parkland, screaming, help me, at the top of my lungs. Now, I know it was in the middle of the night, but I saw cars in driveways. I knocked on a couple doors. Not one person came out. Nobody. I was screaming, he's got my baby. He's got my baby. Help me, help me, help me. Not one person in that goddamn neighborhood in Parkland came out to do anything. I thought, okay. Nobody's helping me. (laughs) So I'm going to run back to the house. Then my thought was get back to the house and Henry. Because I didn't know. I didn't know if they were, I didn't know where they had gone. So here I come running down the street. I, you know, had lost my bladder. So my pants were all wet. I'm crying like hysterical. I'm this, I am. I'm the hysterical wife. I'm putting quotes, hysterical wife, running up to the cops. I look crazy, you know, and there he is. He had driven back to the house, pulled in, got him back in the crib and had his his special military coins in his pocket. He happened to have them ready. So when the cops came there, he is outside with the um, Broward Sheriff's Office Parkland branch giving them coins and buddy-buddy and hey, hey, patting backs and laughing. Yeah, my, my wife loves drama. That, yeah. And I couldn't prove any of it. But he was already back by the time the cops got there.
1: The next morning, Kate put Henry on a flight back to his father and filed for a restraining order. She'd finally left him. This is the moment you're waiting for when you hear a story like this. But after she had a temporary restraining order... Things didn't really get easier for Kate. Tom was still a presence in her life. It was just that now she never knew where he was or what he might do next. And there didn't seem to be much left that she could do to stop him. Before, it was like she didn't know she was in a horror movie. Now she knew she was in a horror movie, but she couldn't do anything about it. She couldn't even prove that Tom was behind the bizarre things that kept happening to her. This was her life for years.
2: My house got broken into, but nothing was stolen. For safety, Kate moved out of the house they'd shared and into a new apartment. He broke into my new apartment and drew a giant penis on the wall of William's room in, like, that blacklight ink. Oh, my God. Yep. And he made a fake Facebook account to try to talk to me. He sent me cards I wasn't safer when I left. Yeah, I wasn't safer. It was worse after I left. If anything, I got this protection order that is supposed to keep him away from us, yeah. and they're able to take his guns. But then, on the other hand, he can go out the next day and nothing's going to stop him from buying a new one because it's a temporary restraining order. Yeah. He's not convicted of anything.
1: The police had confiscated Tom's guns, Kate thinks there were at least seven, when they first served the temporary restraining order. But in Florida, someone under a temporary restraining order can still buy a new gun. Kate kept getting temporary restraining orders, and they kept expiring. And permanent orders of protection are much harder to get.
2: I had moved to a brand new apartment two weeks prior, an address I had not given to my ex. Safety reasons, it was a gated community.
1: By this time, it was 2012. Kate's older son, Henry, was still living with his father. Kate was still living in Florida with her younger son, William, who was now four. One night, as she was leaving home, she noticed a warning light on in her car. Low tire pressure.
2: Tom had let the air out of her tires before. So as soon as I saw that, the low tire pressure, I thought, fuck, he found me. This
1: time, he'd slashed them. She called her dad and called 911.
2: My dad showed up before the police officer did. So he came into the apartment. He waited with Will. I saw the cop pull up, walked out, showed her the tire, explained the history and everything that had been going on. And she sympathized, but as we figured, said, well, there's really nothing that we can do because you don't have a restraining order. I said, well, I've been turned down for several and she said, you need to go get one. And I said, well, I've been turned down for several. I don't know why this time would be any different. I can't prove it's him that he did it. So, I, you know, I'm sure the judge will just turn me down. And she said, well, I mean, I still think you should try, but there's really nothing we can do. And as she was leaving, I said, he's going to have to kill me before you people do anything about him. The officer
1: had gone, and
2: eventually her dad went to leave too. So he opens the door and goes to leave and gets partway down the walkway and turns back and he's like, Katie, call 911. Tom is here. So I did. I called 911. And my dad said, I'll wait out here. You go inside with William. Like he was going to probably try to like diffuse whatever was going on. And I said, No, dad, just come in. Like I don't have a good feeling. Just come in. By the time my dad got into the door, Tom had come across the grass and reached our door and was beginning to push in to try to come into the apartment. And my dad and I, so if I'm facing the door, I was on the left side pushing and my dad was on the right side pushing and trying to lock the handle the
1: door was still open, right but it was
2: still open yeah and my dad could see him in the crack of the door and he was saying I just want to talk to Kate I just want to talk to Kate and then all of a sudden boom 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 three bullets came through the door
1: do you remember the bullets coming through
2: the sound I didn't know I (sighs) the sound is what I remember the boom 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 so did those bullets hit you? In that moment, I don't know. What I do know is that then he pushed in and had the gun pointed at me, and I remember a boom, and then I remember my hand, my right hand, exploding. I I know I fell to the ground... I had blood all over me, all all over me, and it was like sticky and like that iron smell like the uh, and um he was yelling, he was yelling, "Why did you take my stuff? Why did you take my stuff?" So I had moved into this apartment and had taken some of the furniture from the home, furniture that had been on my credit card. <laughs> yeah. But it was his stuff. That's what he was screaming. He wasn't saying, I love you so much. I can't live without you. I just wanted us to be a family. I miss my son. I don't want a divorce. I can't live without you. If I can't have you, nobody will. He wasn't saying any of those cliche things that we always hear. He was yelling about his fucking furniture. So I'm, I'm on the ground profusely, like, hurt injured, bleeding, and pleading for my life, saying, I'll return it. I'll give it back to you. Please don't do this. I, I, thought I, I thought I was done. I thought absolutely that I was done. But then he turned, and my dad was on the floor trying to call 911, and Tom walked over to him and demanded that he turn off his phone and push the phone away, and then I heard, boom. And I heard my dad grunt. And so I thought he killed him. I mean, I, I thought he killed him. After he shot my dad, he came, Tom came back over and knelt down next to Will. And I could see them through, like, the legs of the chairs and the table. And he had the gun on me, and he was playing with it. Like, pointing it at me and playing with it in the laser, like he had done when he was playing with his guns, you know, when we lived together. He never looked crazy. He never looked out of control. He was ready. He knew exactly what he was doing. So when he carried it out, then Will said, don't do it, Daddy, don't shoot Mommy. When Tom heard the police arrive, he told Kate to
1: leave. She dragged herself out onto the lawn where the officers could see her.
2: And they're like, ma'am, can you get over to us? And I was like, I'm dying. No, I need help. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, no. (laughs) About a minute later, out comes my dad. So he didn't die. Out comes my dad. He's got Will in front of him. So my dad had gotten up, got Will, said, Will, it's time to go. Like he said, he kind of put his body over top of Will to, you know, protect. I know. Um, to protect him. So, like, if anybody was going to get the bullet, it was going to be him. But we know that had he shot him low, he could have hit Will, too. So my dad and Will got out. And they're like, the cops are like, sir, can you get her off the ground and over to us? <laughs> this is so my 68-year-old father. <laughs> when I was 68 at the time. Bleeding with a small child is like Katie... And like, grabs my and he's like, Katie, we got to go. You've got to get up. We've, we've got to get over there. You've got to go. And I, I don't know. I, I got it. I, I just hung on to him. And he was, he was a hero. Up. I stood up. But it was because my dad. It was like, Katie, we got to go. And I listened to him, you know.
1: Tom surrendered to the police. And Kate was taken to the hospital in a helicopter. She was conscious the whole flight. She said she was scared that if she closed her eyes, she might not open them again. She'd lost a lot of blood, but she was lucky. A bullet had passed through her breast and missed her heart. Surgeons were able to repair her hand. And they removed the bullet that had gone into her father's side, though nerve damage where he was shot in the arm has left his hand disabled.
2: You know, in these abusive relationships and when these things happen, it's so much more than than the couple. Yeah. My entire extended family was traumatized. But she and her father recovered, at least physically. And
1: Kate's begun working with other women who've lived through domestic violence to advocate for gun control.
2: Nothing's going to change until these angry men are disarmed. Like, let's get to the most basic piece of it. It's these angry men that are armed and pissed and entitled and believe they own us and possess us. And when we leave, then they think they can kill us. That was my exact experience. That's the exact experience of lots of others like me. I've always felt strongly about sharing my crime scene at my hand, that people need to see that this is the damage. But I never had any sort of big response to that until the doctors in the medical community started posting the hashtag, this is our lane. I just was like, you know what? It's my lane too. And I have scenes that look like that. The doctors are the miracle workers and they're the ones that are saving lives and on the front line, but they're still one step removed because they're working on a victim. I am a victim and I know what it feels like to be shot. And I know what it feels like to be in a crime scene, to be a crime scene. And so I was like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna share it. People need to see it. This is happening all the time. Last year, Tom was found guilty
1: of two counts of attempted murder for shooting Kate and her father. He was sentenced to 60 years for each, which makes this a best-case scenario, as such things go. Henry's 15 now. The day we met with Kate, she'd been talking in therapy about leaving him with his father. Even after everything else that happened, she still struggles with the decision she made back then. Will, meanwhile, was four years old when he saw his dad shoot his mom. His entire conscious life has been shaped by that night. He's 10 now, and during the five hours we spent with Kate, he was playing quietly in the living room. He didn't want to talk, but he did want to listen. Every so often, he'd come over and rest his head against Kate's neck or grab her hand or pat her head. What is it like to talk about this stuff in front of your your 10-year-old son? How have you thought about the way you talk about it in front
2: of him? So after the shooting, because he witnessed the the whole thing from start to finish with his own eyes— a child trauma team came in um, through, like, victim services and worked with him from day one. And we were told we weren't to change the story, we weren't to hide the story, we weren't to say that anything happened in any different way than it did, that that would do immeasurable harm to him because he saw the whole thing. So to change the story or to hide it and and be shameful about it would not be good as a future man, this is something I believe deeply that he needs to know happened in detail because that's the only way we're gonna change things. Has it ever been hard to maintain that level of honesty with him? No. It hasn't. I... There was one time in all of this right after the shooting where he was processing it in his little four-year-old mind, and he he was in the back of the car, and I remember he was like, why didn't you just give him back his stuff? (laughs) And I I was like, sorry, and I was still raw as hell, and I started crying, and I but I just, you know, I was
0: like, but... that's not why he shot us. So I was
2: trying to explain to him that that's not, honey, that's not the reason that, that he came to shoot us. He wasn't, that's just what he was saying. But he, you know, he came to shoot us because, you know, he wanted to control mommy, not, not because, you know, not because of the stuff. I'll just, I'll always answer his questions as honestly and openly as I can. Just, I don't know any other way to do it.
1: That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVee and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazneen Johnny, and Alex Bloomberg, recently spotted discussing Ferrante at Nets game. Music and sound design are by Haley Shaw. Mixing is by Haley Shaw and Keegan Zemma. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarlay, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.